you're tuned to Tidings, and I'm Hazel Kahn. Today, I'm very pleased to introduce my guest, the American writer and urbanist, Adam Greenfield, who's talking to us via Zoom from London, where he now lives. Adam has spent the past quarter century thinking and working at the, the intersection of technology, design, and politics with everyday life. His books include the best-selling Against the Smart City and Radical Technologies. Welcome to Tidings and to WPKN, Adam. Thank you, Hazel. It's great to be here. I'm really intrigued by the language and the concept that you introduce in your recent Verso Books blog post. I hope you'll be telling us about things like organized abandonment, negative commons, assemblies, mm and nodes of unconscious coordination. I'll stop here for now. And let's just then go on about your own view of climate system collapse. And then perhaps you take us to life houses. After that, let's talk about your upcoming book. In, In April this year, you write that an Easter article by Simon Jenkins, the Guardian columnist, author, and BBC broadcaster, that that sparked the thought that would lead to life houses. And this, this is actually what led me to you, where you say an entirely new set of distributed infrastructure capacities demanded by our age of climate system collapse. And the reason that sparked my interest in your work is because I've been interested in the dark mountain approach or philosophy about what they call living among the ruins at the end of the world as we've known it. Specifically, Dougald Hines' work, where he says of your work, quote, maybe there are clues here to some of the kinds of work to be done among the ruins of our inherited traditions and institutions. You call it the long emergency. The mic is now in your hands, Adam. Mm, Thank you, Hazel. Well, so for me, a lot of this thought goes back to Occupy Sandy, which was a bottom-up, self-organized community recovery and resilience effort that arose in the wake of Superstorm Sandy in 2012. I was then living in Manhattan. When Superstorm Sandy hit New York, my partner and I were immediately struck by the the desire to pitch in and, and help the, the city with its recovery effort. I was not as politicized then as, as I've since become. And so my first instinct was, well, we'll call the American Red Cross. And eventually we got through to a human being, although it wasn't easy. And they said, well, there's nothing that we have for you to do. We, we have a very well-oiled machine set up here. And uh, really, we don't need volunteers. And if you are insisting on doing something, uh, there is this effort called Occupy Sandy at a church in Prospect Heights in Brooklyn. And we went out to Prospect Heights. As we were walking down the block on on Clinton Avenue towards the church, we were basically immediately greeted by somebody waiting out on the sidewalk with a clipboard, channeled us with no perceptible delay at all into actual productive work on behalf of the people in the communities in New York who had been hit so hard by the storm. The the lifehouse in embryo is all there. It is the notion of a self-organized, spontaneous community effort that is non-hierarchical, horizontal, that repurposes underutilized structures in the community, and particularly structures that have had some sort of emotional salience or, or, or significance to the community, and 
uses them to help the community negotiate the extremely difficult circumstances that we now face in a, in a time of compound crises. Climate system collapse is now an, an inescapable global reality for all of us. It isn't simply that circumstance, though. It, it is that that circumstance lands on a body politic, on a public sphere, on a public space, and on a human community that has been weakened by 40 years of ideologically driven and imposed neoliberal austerity. So the retreat of the state from social provision, from with the evacuation of universal provision of things like healthcare, education, housing, nutrition support. We are all of us weakened. We are we are not as robust and as strong as we might be. We've gotten worn down by these circumstances so that when something like a pandemic hits or indeed a, a, a hurricane, we just don't face it with the same resources that we might have otherwise. When we showed up on Clinton Avenue in Brooklyn, there was a, a church there that was in the process of, of being renovated. And it, it was vacant at the time. It wasn't being actively used by a congregation. And the pastor of the church, he said, we have this resource. You need a distribution center. You need a warehouse. You need a place to cook hot meals. You need a place to, to collect and, and redistribute aid packages. Use the church. Use the sanctuary of the church. Use everything that the church has to offer. And so that is what Occupy Sandy did. Uh, eventually occupied a variety of facilities across the five boroughs of New York and, and out to New Jersey. But its main distribution and resource hubs were in two churches in Brooklyn. And these were tremendous facilities. I mean, the pews of the church were literally turned into a logistics center, a warehouse, where uh, we would sort incoming packages that had been donated. And then they were given to field teams to be brought out to the Rockaways or, or whatever communities were, were furthest hit. So that's one stream of the inspiration for the Lifehouse idea. The other comes from something which was happening at that exact moment across town on the Lower East Side. There's a wonderful book called Ours to Lose. It's a social history and an ethnography of squatting on the Lower East Side by a woman named Amy Staracheski. She tells a story that during the power outages for a couple of weeks, there was a, a squat on Avenue C called C Squat, still there, Avenue C between 9th and 10th. They just happened to have a stationary exercise bicycle that had been rigged up as a dynamo generator. So you could sit on the bike and ride the bike and use that to produce electric power. And they had set that bicycle on the sidewalk next to a bank of phone chargers so that once their phone batteries had died, people from the community could come around, charge their phones. But even more importantly than that, it also became a social hub where people would, would gather to exchange news and information. And even more simply than that, fellowship. You also need some reassurance that you're not alone and that you haven't been forgotten and that you will not be abandoned. So if you combine these two ideas, an underutilized physical resource, an underutilized building in the community, generally a church, because the profession of Christian faith is in radical decline in the United mm -hmm. Kingdom. At least here in the United Kingdom, we have something like 50,000 abandoned or underutilized churches. Extraordinary buildings, uh, most of them what are called grade one listed. So they're, you know, they're historically valuable buildings. They're built out of stone. They've been there in many cases since medieval times. They're at the physical and social heart of their communities. They have fallen into disrepair because they have no active congregations. And this is the crux of the Jenkins article. Jenkins says, you know, well, why don't we 
you know, figure out something to do with all these buildings. And and he's not wrong, but his vision of what to do with them is curiously unmoored from the realities of our moment in the wake of climate system collapse. Power outages, the, the water from the taps is not safe to drink or is not trustworthy or reliable. Shortfalls of medicine and shortfalls of, of caloric support, of nutrition, and probably in physical shelter places for people to sleep. When you take all these ideas together, there's this almost medieval quality of the cathedral church as the center of the community that grows out of it, with people actively growing food there, generating solar power to decouple themselves from the centralized power grid and to ensure you can certainly do water filtration sites like this. You can insulate each community from the worst impacts of a moment like this where the things that we've gotten used to over the past century of development are suddenly and, and radically open to question. These things are not necessarily so reliable anymore, and they're going to become still more untrustworthy. Let me interrupt you by asking you then about specific language terms that you use. Mutual aid comes in when the state or other sources leaves organized abandonment that we're treated like a sacrifice zone under late capitalism. Yes. And you talk about negative commons as the system we relied on are more contingent than we thought. These terms that are new but very evocative. I'm I'm really, really glad that that language resonates. Yeah, the negative commons. Can you just elaborate about that term? So the, the commons is a discourse, a body of rhetoric about... Things, resources, provisions that are not offered by either the state or the market, but that are generated by communities out of their own wherewithal and their own desire. That could refer to a plot of land, a song, or a story. In this case, it refers to any physical site that has been so damaged by its exposure to processes of extraction and exploitation that conventional economics considers it to be without worth. It's a commons because nobody wants it anymore, or at least nobody mm-hmm. thinks that, that further value can be extracted from it anymore. And, mm-hmm. and you know, some examples of this would be nuclear waste sites or conventional garbage dumps or certain neighborhoods of certain cities where they have lost their appeal to the parties that would that would use them to to extract capital and other resource from them. Mm-hmm. And the result is that they're they're essentially free for the taking. Some of them indeed are so damaged, so very toxic, that they're not healthy or safe for anybody to be on. From the Philippines to, to India, like there there are literally hundreds of thousands to millions of human beings who live their entire lives in active toxic waste dumps. This version of the negative commons Fortunately, is is a little bit less immediately toxic to us. It, it's a it's a negative commons merely by virtue of the fact that these communities have, have become evacuated, and the population is in general across the world fleeing from the countryside into into the big cities, into the mega cities mm-hmm. and the conurbations. And so you could even think about a small town in Kansas, you know, as a negative commons. When the children leave, they they don't perceive any opportunity there. They move off to the bright lights in the big city. And what you're left with is generally decent building stock. You've got infrastructure. You've got all of the makings of a functioning community. You just don't have the bodies to activate it and make it meaningful. The community has been extracted in a sense. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. 
So, yeah. you know, this way of thinking about the commons and, and a negative commons and what use and value and meaning we might still derive from places that late capitalism regards as sacrifice zones is is near and dear to my heart. I think, you know, capital is not the only index of value and it, it certainly isn't the one that means the most to me. There there are ways in which we can be together and derive value from our inhabitation, our dwelling upon these sites that have very little to do with the bottom line or the quarterly results. Right. Let me ask you two other concepts, shelling and also assemblies. Does that come in right now? Absolutely, it does. Certainly in urban thought, a shelling point is is a node of unconscious coordination. And and this stuff really mattered before we were all making our appointments on, on smartphones and, and in continuous contact with one another at all times. In 1960, if I were in London and you were in Los Angeles and we had arranged to meet at noon tomorrow in New York City, but we didn't specify where, where would you have met me? Maybe in... A railway station or something. Mm. Typically for New York City, it would have been the clock in Grand Central Station. Right. So this is the shelling point in, in New York City. In Tokyo, it's a clock that's in the window of, of a particular department store in the Ginza. In London, it would be in uh, Paddington Station, I think. It's any building which is physically central, which bears uh, a significance in the lives of the people who mm-hmm. move and, and live around it. In the mm. event of a natural disaster, it could be a high school gymnasium, city hall, anywhere that people would sort of unconsciously regard as the equivalent of the electric chargers out in front of C-Squat. They would be like, where would I instinctually feel like I would be likely to find other people? I feel like our, our instincts for these things are somewhat eroded now, but up until very recently, consensus on this stuff was almost universal. Everybody knew where it would be. Like animals meeting at the watering hole. Yes, yeah. well, precisely this. We have muscle memory for these things. Mm. They, they, they loom mm. large in our imagination. Adam Greenfield, author and urbanist, is talking about life houses. This is Hazel Kahn and Tidings on WPKN Radio. Here's another term of art for you. Here's another piece of language. I think a lot about what I call technologies of permanent recourse to robustness. What endures when most of the very fragile systems that that underwrite everyday life collapse? And what we're left with is what we have on our persons at any given moment. We're left with our voice, our ability to communicate, the tools and the materials that we have in immediate physical proximity to us. And we're left with the body of relations that we've entered into. And this speaks directly to my interest in the assembly. It implies that when things get very, very difficult, these tools will be persistently available to us. They're less likely to be stripped away from us, certainly, than internet connectivity or electric power. They're delicately balanced, highly complex, far from any kind of equilibrium, and any kind of disequilibrative shock to the system is, is liable to knock them out. Whereas if you build your systems of everyday life on techniques and technologies of permanent recourse, they'll be robust or just about whatever happens. You're assuming that systems collapse is either here or will be inevitably here. Or will become a routine feature of our lives in ways that it hasn't been for perhaps the last half century and and cannot and will not be sustained. Do you agree with Dougal Hine about living among the ruins, even though you may not use those words? Yeah, I, I tend to use a less high romantic vocabulary, yeah. maybe. So how do we manage for ourselves 
uses language among the ruins. And this is where the assembly comes in. The assembly mm. is a technology of permanent recourse that crops up time and time again and, and across a, a variety of very heterogeneous places in human history. But the instinct is to gather, mm. possibly in a shelling point, with the entire community and to deliberate and to discuss matters of common concern and to arrive at approaches that are as consensual as possible as to how to deal with, with the, the, the things that affect us and those matters of concern. So how does that lead to the life houses? We start with the fact of these empty buildings, but also the set of needs felt by local communities. And if there should be a consonance between the fact of an empty, underutilized, available structure and acute needs that could be served by that structure, then I think people should occupy these buildings. Mm-hmm. I think people should take it upon themselves to claim these buildings in the name of the community, to set up communal kitchens, begin to figure out how to use them to generate power and to purify water and to grow crops, to shelter the people who otherwise would would be sleeping on the street. This can be more than justified in the name of our need that runs counter to most of our proprietarian instincts. Somebody will still formally own these structures. And we're not good in either North American or, or British culture about negotiating a modus vivendi between the strictures of the law and actual need. You do what the moment calls for. You know, the moment is its own justification. And we are talking about acute, immediate human need. Along with all the other structures that have been abandoned, also fallen away with those structures is our usual way of being with each other. So people don't know how to be with each other in this new situation. Part of the robustness was the existing social and legal structures and our usual way of being with each other. That collapses too. The emergency will bring people together, but that doesn't mean they know how to be with each other. I don't think we know how to be with each other. I think those skills have atrophied, and I think that Mm. they've never atrophied so rapidly as they have since the introduction of something that I was for better or for worse, intimately involved in helping to develop, which was the the network digital technological surround that we now have. Smartphones in particular really do attrit our ability to be emotionally and and cognitively present with one another. Mm. I think that as it becomes harder and harder to sustain these networks and power these devices and, and make sure that they're always available to us, we'll be left increasingly with nothing but the presence of the other, nothing Mm. but the requirement to make our way together. I think we're going to have to come out of our isolation. I don't think things are going to be easy or comfortable for quite a while to come, but but I think what we get in compensation for that are the rewards of being together with, with other people who are similarly situated, who are feeling similar things. And we can learn, I hope, I certainly hope this is the case, because otherwise I think we're in a very large amount of trouble. I think that we can recover our instincts for collaboration, for cooperation, to recover the value in, in what's become a, a dirty word, the, the collective. When we hear the word collective now, we tend to think of, of Stalinism, you know, the bloody, extraordinary blunders that were made in the name of the collective in the 20th century. Yeah, the dreaded socialism. Yeah, that is not the only meaning behind the word collective or the reality of, of collective action. I'm just going to say that I will never fully personally myself fit into any collective. I will always be, you know, the the sand in in the oyster. So I'm attentive to the idea that whatever collectivities we design and imagine will have to preserve 
real scope for individual idiosyncrasy and and non-compliance, non-collaboration. I, I think that that's crucial. But I think that our future, to the degree that we have one, has to be a collective one. So from yeah. where you stand now, how does it move from becoming a warehouse to becoming yes. a lifehouse? The, the political theory is called horizontalism, and it rejects conventional hierarchical leadership, calls for instead leaderlessness. Very often, any bottom-up horizontal effort, its success will orbit a single, charismatic, unusually energetic individual. Mm. You know, the, the, But I, some people just hold their communities together by force of will and by exertion of energy. And I think all of us know somebody like this. Nobody will ever be able to write a protocol for turning abandoned churches or abandoned high schools into abandoned city halls into life houses. I, I think that it does come down to the individual force of personality and mm -hmm. developing a sense for, for who those people are. Sometimes yeah. leaders have not emerged yet. They emerge during that situation. But right now, we may not know who they are, except that they are among us. I think that's very acutely observed and very true. Uh, and and I, think, you know, I think that's absolutely and arguably true. We ourselves will have to look with new eyes at who these people are, because they may be so improbable that at first we would turn away from them. Yeah, I'm so grateful to hear you say that because it's very true. One of my beefs with the notion of leadership is that it rewards a certain way of being in the world, you know, very mm -hmm. verbal and, and physical. And, and, you know, it speaks to all sorts of implicit hierarchies and implicit judgments about people's value. And I think you're, you've said it perfectly, like it's not the people that you might necessarily expect. Yeah. The other thing is that your neighbors are the people who are going to save you. It's the people on either side of you who are really going to help you. The degree to which you can leverage already existing social relations and, and patterns of relation in the community and bring those resources together in a moment of emergency, that's extremely helpful. You've been talking about the establishment of the Lifehouse as an emergency response, but yes. I got the impression that it was also going to be an ongoing thing. Yes. What is the long emergency? The long emergency is, is everything that we're already contending with and, and we're only liminally aware of. The mm -hmm. interlocking, intensifying, and cascading effects of not merely climate system collapse, but all of the downstream consequences of that. Things like ocean acidification and deoxygenation, crop failure. The, the hotter it is, the more we're tempted to make recourse to physical violence at every level from you know interpersonal squabbles at the household level on up to military action. So a heating world is also necessarily a more violent world. We know that the ongoing consequences of environmental stress are very bad for us physiologically and cognitively. These are empirical facts. In the next very few years, we will somehow have to collectively negotiate the transition to an actually sustainable energetics of material production. have to do so when our shared epistemic environment is under continuous assault by so-called artificial intelligence, when more and more of us will be shouldering the burdens of the after effects of COVID, which is still is affecting us socially, psychologically, physiologically, cognitively. And we'll have to do so when powerful forces are arrayed to prevent us succeeding in any of these dimensions. Those are the contours of the long emergency. We have a very, very tough road to hoe ahead of mm -hmm. us. And the, the chances of sustained success or success that can be shared with large numbers of people is, is just daunting to me.
Let's get back once more to the lighthouses as the long emergency becomes longer. Where I was going with the Occupy Sandy was that as the sense of urgency faded and as the city began to get back to normal, you know, we stopped doing things there. And, and, and weirdly enough, it became almost embarrassing to talk about it. If we can maintain a sense of urgency, mm. of emergency throughout the next 30 or 40 years to come, then I think we can have some very good things indeed. Lifehouses can operate as, as centers of restoration, as centers of relief and repair, uh, not merely on the interpersonal level, but on the societal level. I think they can shelter some number of us from the worst effects of what's going to happen. I think they can give many of us vitally necessary, useful, fulfilling things to do in ways that restore us psychically in places that we might not have even understood that we were damaged. But all of that hinges on the idea, as you say, that these are kind of in continual operation. Human beings are, are capable of the most amazing feats if they know that they only need to do so for a short amount of time. It's the question of extending mm -hmm. these, these processes over the time period that we know they're going to be necessary for and how we regenerate our enthusiasm for things. I don't have answers for this i suspect that we're going to find out in the telling yeah but it's either this or or even worse scenarios even less pleasant scenarios and i think that there are rewards to be found in service and in, in mutual care and in the provision of basic necessities of a dignified existence that have been provided by communities for communities, as opposed to having been delivered to them by either the market or the state. And there's a kind of magic that happens. I've had things that I've written go viral before. This one went very viral. Did it? Yeah. I think So as a result, you know, I have a bishop from the Church of England. Uh, it turns out he's responsible for those 50,000 churches. Um, and that, that he would very much like to have a conversation about the role that the C of E might play in their future use and elaboration. The woman who's the head of the, the Unitarian Church in, in the UK gets in touch, uh, you know, a week later and says, we'd love to have a conversation with you about how we might imaginatively um, use these spaces. It's been a very interesting couple of months. I'm having some extraordinary conversations so is that what your book's going to be about, your new book? My suspicion is that we're all becoming anarchists willy-nilly. And even if people don't necessarily believe in anarchy as, as a political value, I think the state is, is just functionally going away. It has withdrawn from our lives in a great many ways, and it's under, in many places, retreating towards its core military, police, and security functions and evacuating mm -hmm. provision for, for everyday life. And I think mm -hmm. that we need to assert ourselves into that vacuum. And so that, that's what the book is about. Somebody needs to provide healthcare and shelter and education and mobility. And if it's not going to be anybody else, it's going to have to be us. So we might as well get good at it we've been abandoned. Yeah, there are powerful forces in this world who have, have squeezed us like a lemon and extracted all the juice from us and left nothing but the stones. And so now we have to figure out what use to make of what's been left behind and we have to do it together. Now the stones yeah. will rise. Yeah, yeah. How can we build something out of out of the, the paltry materials that we've been left with? But the good news is that there's something 
I think profoundly fulfilling about this work that that speaks mm. to us in ways that that none of the pleasures or satisfactions or inducements or enticements of our contemporary culture are able to quite offer us. Well, thank you, Adam, very much. Thank you, Adam Greenfield. This is so interesting. I'll be following your work and some of the other people that you have linked to in your article. For other people, what is the best way they should get in touch with you or your work? I'm very easy to Google. You can find my blog, speedbird.wordpress.com. There's a contact form there. I am on Mastodon at social.coop at Adam Greenfield. And uh, you ought to be able to find my book, Beyond Hope, Collective Power and Mutual Care in the Long Emergency on your bookshelves next fall. Well, thank you very much indeed, Adam Greenfield. Take care, everybody, and thanks for having me. You've been listening to London-based author and urbanist Adam Greenfield talking about his vision of lifehouses as response to climate change collapse. You can hear Tidings right here on the second Wednesday of the month at 6.30 a.m. and 8 p.m. or any time at all as podcasts on hazelcarn.com. To support my programs, Tidings and North Fork Works, and all the wonderful WPKN interview programs, please support us by making a donation at wpkn.org. Thank you. I'm Hazel Kahn. Mm-hmm.